Lord, we pray, our Father, that you will open our eyes to your truth and that you will thereby change us, sanctify us, strengthen us, encourage, convict, transform us. We need your word. We need it as we need our daily bread. We pray, God, that you would meet us here in your word and teach us in a way that we will leave from here encouraged and challenged and different. We do pray that you will have your way, that we will obey and learn to walk in a manner that is worthy of you as we carry on the mission that you have given us in this world. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Perhaps at this very moment, somewhere on earth, there is a rocket that is lifting off. There is somewhere, perhaps a sprinter, who fires out of the starting blocks at the start of a race. As we're gathered here, a transport plane rises from the tarmac carrying soldiers to war. A young couple emerges from a hospital with a newborn baby. A baseball team takes the field with its sights set on a championship season. Somewhere on this day, a world leader initiates a course of action that is going to change history. From grand to routine, from unnoticed to unprecedented, from mundane to celebrated, missions of all types and sizes are constantly being launched. In one respect, our lives are really just a series of missions, aren't they? There are the small missions, such as changing a diaper or cleaning a messy room or running an errand. And there are the larger missions in life, leaving home, earning a degree, entering a career, marriage, children, retirement. And for the child of God, every life mission is an aspect of the grand and overarching mission to serve Jesus Christ. If you are born again, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you are God's child and your mission in life is clear. You live to glorify God. You live to glorify God. You live to advance His cause. That is why we are here. That is what we are doing. That is the purpose for our lives. There is one grand and overarching mission. Now how we each fulfill that mission is going to differ somewhat, undoubtedly. But we will live to glorify God with our eyes fixed on the future that is necessary, eternal reward, eternal life in His presence. That is what a mission involves. It must take us forward. But we are all here to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
This is a mission that we share with the people of God through history, and we are privileged this morning to look back in time and to consider the launch of Moses' mission in Egypt, in which we learn much about the nature and the purposes of the God who has called us to the mission of serving the kingdom of Jesus Christ. As we return to Exodus chapter 4 today, Moses has been tending the flocks of Jethro, his Midianite father-in-law, for the past 40 years. Near Mount Sinai, God appeared to Moses and assigned him the mission to return to Egypt and to demand that Pharaoh release the Israelites from slavery. God assured Moses he would go with him and gave to Moses three miraculous signs to assure the Israelites that God had indeed appeared to him. Moses tries desperately to resist the mission which God called him to fulfill, but God prevails in the end. In chapter 4 and verse 18, Moses' mission is launched. The first task is to return Jethro's flock and to seek release from his pastoral duties. Moses seeks release from Jethro in verse 18 as we read, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt and see if any of them are still alive. The request is made. It had to have been a rather strange journey back to Midian. Having met with God at this burning bush and going back to tell his father-in-law, how is he going to approach him? What exactly is Moses supposed to tell this man? Is he supposed to storm into his tent and say, God appeared to me, I'm going to go back and deliver the Israelites from the most powerful nation on earth. How is he going to put this? Moses doesn't lie to his father-in-law. On the other hand, though he doesn't need to say everything, he wants to be specific enough not to raise suspicion. And says then to his father-in-law, I want to see if any of them are still alive. This is perhaps, as some would argue, a figure of speech that means something like, I want to see how my family is doing. I want to go back and I want to reconnect with my family. So it's the truth. It's not all the truth. It's what Jethro can handle. And Moses seeks release. And we can add here, I think, an important point as the request is granted at the end there, verse 18. Jethro says, go, and I wish you well, that it is important when God calls someone to know that we need to finalize details appropriately. Moses has acted honorably and respectably to see Jethro's patriarchal blessing. The call of God does not exempt one from exercising such respectful responsibility. Moses ties up matters at home, and then he turns his nose to Egypt. In this preparation time for this great mission, there's the finalizing of matters here with his family, but then there is, secondly, words from God, final instructions from the Lord as Moses launches this mission. Verse 19, Now the Lord had said to Moses, by the way, that's an interpretive translation, I think probably unnecessary, the word had said, Speaking of an earlier time, we really don't know when this conversation took place. But let's just read it as the Hebrew text does. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead.
Perhaps God is simply telling Moses here that the actual time to return has come. So back chapter 3 and verse 10, you will return to Egypt. Chapter 4 and verse 19, now is the time. What is more, God tells Moses here that he does not need to sneak into Egypt under cover of night, for everyone who sought his life is dead. Remember him killing the Egyptian in chapter 2. Moses needs to concern himself with the man who sits in front of him on the throne. He doesn't need to watch his back. Indeed, as Peter ends notes, it is a sign that the exodus has really begun. Notice this connection that he draws. Those seeking to kill Moses are dead. Those seeking to kill Israel would soon die. The mission has begun. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Moses packs the family van, and he heads back to Egypt. He does not return to Egypt with an army. He does not carry a sword. What's in his hand? It's that simple staff, that shepherd's staff, with which he will bring Egypt to its knees. It will be clear then, to all that Moses' power comes from God alone, that it is God who is effecting this deliverance. He doesn't come with an army. He comes with a shepherd's staff, and then all the glory must go to God alone for what is accomplished. Verse 21, the Lord said further to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. What wonders? The only wonders mentioned to this point in the account are the three miraculous signs God gave to Moses to convince the Israelites. Remember verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4. Do this to convince the Israelites that I have appeared to you and of the true message. If by all the wonders I have given you the power to do, God refers to these three signs, it is odd that we only witness Moses performing one of those signs, and that is the rod turning to a snake. We have no indication in the text of Scripture that he ever puts his hand inside of his robe and pulls it out leprous, nor that he pours out water from the Nile and it becomes blood. All of that to say it is possible that God has sat with Moses now and coached him on the ten plagues which will be performed with his staff. Now the water will turn to blood, but Moses will hold his staff over it rather than pour it out before Pharaoh. Hard to know, but it seems that there is much that God is saying to Moses that we don't really know. What we do know, and in fact are prepared for here, is that there will be some mighty wonders that will take place through this man and through the use of this simple staff of God. Notice how it's referred to there in verse 20 again. It is the staff of God. It's Moses' shepherd's staff. It's in his hand. But God's power will work through this staff in unique and mighty ways. So, go back to Pharaoh. Perform these wonders that I have given you. Notice the middle of verse 21. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We have here what we refer to often as dual causality. On the one hand... Pharaoh will willingly harden his own heart against God's command, and God knows this. Chapter 3 and verse 19. 
God is not in the dark wondering what Pharaoh will do. He is not taking a guess, chapter 3, verse 19. He knows precisely what Pharaoh will do. And Pharaoh will harden his own heart over and over again. He will choose not to listen to God. On the other hand, God will not intervene to soften Pharaoh's heart. And that's a frightening thought. There are times when God does not choose to intervene to soften hearts, and it's a scary thing to see. But we're going to see this displayed over and over again in the life of Pharaoh. We see it displayed over and over again in the life of God's people in our own lives, and certainly in the lives of unbelievers who will not yield to the truth of God's Word. It is frightening to be hardened by God. But we cannot be fair with the truth of God's Word and just write that verse out of the Bible. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will let him remain hard. He will choose it. I will permit it. He will not force Pharaoh to disobey, as if God is divided against his own command. But Pharaoh will not obey God, and God will not intervene. And the purpose will be, will be to bring glory to God. Chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. But Moses, listen. Listen to me. When this happens, when Pharaoh refuses over and over again to hear my word and hardens his heart, then, verse 22, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. You notice what's taking place here. God says, I have a firstborn son. That is Israel. Moses, Pharaoh needs to get this message. Israel is mine. I am not moving to deliver Israel simply because she suffers unjust oppression, but because she is my prized possession. Israel is not your slave, Pharaoh. Israel is my precious son. And I perhaps will, as God gives grace, say more on this as the series develops through Exodus. But let's remember this point. The idea of the Exodus is not merely a deliverance from slavery. The idea of Exodus from beginning to end is Israel belongs to God. Because Egypt is poised to kill the firstborn son of God, God will strike the firstborn son of Egypt of Pharaoh, and of all of the Egyptians. Let my son go. But when he does not, Moses, let him know, Israel is my firstborn son. And I will take Egypt's firstborn son in response. We should stand here for a moment at this place in awe before this revelation with wonder and delight. Let us cherish the fact that this text reveals a God of zealous, loyal love for His people. 
We will never fully understand in this life why God ordains the suffering that he assigns to us. Why he takes so long at times to intervene. What he is seeking to accomplish with the pain that we do suffer. But we must remember two things as we consider all of this. First of all, God is God. A two-year-old cannot understand the ways of mom and dad, cannot understand why they say some of the things that they say, do some of the things that they do. They do not have the capacity to really understand their parents. And multiply that over infinitely. We do not have the capacity to understand the purposes of God fully as his children. God is God. But this second point flows from this text directly, and that is God is tenaciously loyal to his people. You may not always understand his timing and will and purposes, but you can know this, take it to the bank, trust it. He will always remain loyal to his people. If you are a child of God through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, revel in this truth. God loves you. And his love will never be taken away. You can know with full assurance that our God is a God of zeal. He's a God of zealous, loyal love. And he will, in the end, deliver your soul. What is important is that you know him and that you are sure that you are one of his people. In verse 22, we hear the same voice that bursts forth in exultation at the Jordan, do we not? This is my son whom I love. This is my unique son whom I love, the father said of Jesus in Matthew 3. The same, this same heavenly father would ordain for his son indescribable suffering. But he would also remain tenaciously loyal to Jesus and in the perfect time, the father would say to death, let my son go, and would seat this son at his right hand, giving to Jesus a name that is above every name in heaven and on earth. And then that gives so much hope to us as we identify with Jesus Christ. It gives us hope and it gives us joy. This same loyal love pours out of the heart of God toward his people today. 1 John 3 and verse 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, literally in the Greek text, the sons of God. Not speaking so much, in, not at all, really in male-female terms, but in terms of fraternity. We are one with Him. That is what we are, John says. You, see, you hear the excitement and the thrill in his words, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called his children. He has poured out his love. Do we sense it? Do we know it? Do we trust it? Romans 8 and verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There again is the fraternity. Christ is the first. He is the firstborn Son of God. But He brings with Him a whole group of people who are His own. God loves us in Christ. What joy, what privilege, what responsibility. This is an amazing revelation. Israel is my Son. That tenacious loyalty 
His evidence toward Christ and His evidence today on this side of the cross toward the people who belong to Jesus Christ. We can know that we have a God of intense love. What joy and what responsibility. Verse 24, as we hit a bump in the road on the mission to Egypt. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said, so the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. This is a rather mysterious episode, believe me. Reminiscent of the night Jacob wrestled with God on his journey back to Canaan, Genesis 28. So mysterious, you never forget it, and perhaps that is part of the design. Perhaps there is um, oral tradition that goes behind the story that would have been made obvious to them, but is not to us. But one commentator in preparing to study through this passage said this, This passage is fraught with interpretive challenges that have perplexed interpreters for centuries. I love reading that when you're doing work in the text of Scripture. It's like, oh no, for centuries? There's a lot of questions we can't answer here. This is one weird night. Some strange things went on here as Moses met with God and God almost killed him. A lot of guesswork, so I put that out as a disclaimer, but I'll plow through quickly to the best of my understanding at this point in time. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses, verse 24, and he was about to kill him. You'll notice there that Moses is, is in brackets. It reads literally him, and that's one of the great problems of the text. You never know who's who here. But apparently, with this, with this decision made by the translators, I will we'll side with them and say that it is, in fact, Moses who is uh, about to be killed by the Lord. It could be his son. We are not told explicitly why God wants to kill Moses. Seems rather strange to us, doesn't it? Here's this man that God has called to go into Egypt and deliver Israel, and now he wants to put him to death on the way there. What's going on? We don't know. All we know is what it takes to appease the wrath of God. What does it take? It takes the circumcision. We're reminded that it were it not for that circumcision, God apparently would have killed Moses, and it reminds us that God is never bound to use us. Moses' mission is about to end in tragedy before it even gets off the runway. At verses 25 and 26, this circumcision does take place. Zipporah takes a sharp stone, kind of a horrifying thought, but she takes a sharp stone to perform this surgery. That was a traditional way of doing so, even long after metal knives were figured out, they still often would use a flint stone. That was a very sharp stone, but it is a gruesome sight in some ways. And for reasons we cannot understand, one of Moses' sons is not circumcised. Now, Pastor Pratt read earlier Genesis 17. Did you get the idea from Genesis 17 that circumcision is an optional idea? That it's just a medical procedure that you can do or not do, it's up to you. Let's go back to Genesis 17 just for a moment and look at verse 10. This is no medical procedure when it comes to God and His relationship with Israel. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 10. 
Genesis 17.10, God says to Moses, this, or rather to Abraham, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And then as you go through, all males are to be circumcised who are part of the clan of Israel, even slaves. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now why is Moses' son uncircumcised? We don't have the details on that, but what we can know is that this was a way of identifying with the covenant-keeping God. So Zipporah understands her son is not circumcised. This is the reason for God's anger against Moses, and she performs the rite. And then touches the feet of Moses, possibly a euphemism, but she touches the feet of Moses with the bloody skin, which I take here as, here you are, this is your doing, not mine. Because she calls him a bridegroom of blood. Now, commentators, let me tell you, particularly today, work overtime to explain to us how righteous Zipporah is and how she is the heroine of the story. She's the most important person here. And they do bring up rightly that she indeed rescues Moses. Another woman comes along and rescues Moses, as did Pharaoh's daughter, as did indeed his, mo- his mother and his sister. But I don't know, I, w- without any agenda to exalt someone because they are a woman, do you get the idea here of Zipporah touching the feet of Moses with this piece of bloody skin and saying, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, that she's all happy about this? In fact, the Hebrew word blood here, a bridegroom of blood, is actually in the plural and is used elsewhere in the Bible with a noun, as it is here, bridegroom of blood. When that type of a phrase is found in the Old Testament, it is never complimentary. It is always a negative connotation. In other words, Zipporah is upset with the circumcision, yet knows that it is what God requires. Think of that. I think we can conclude that. She knows it's what God requires. It has not been done, and she's upset about the whole thing. Now, I am filling in blanks, but it would appear to me that in the past she has opposed this circumcision and comes to this place and knows that if it is not performed, my husband Moses will die. I don't know what part she had in resisting this circumcision. She perhaps is at fault. We can leave that to rest. What we don't need to leave at rest is that Moses is at fault. Moses has failed to exercise leadership in his home. He has failed to bring the son into a place of identification with the people of God. With this son, Moses has broken covenant with the Lord. And he is held accountable for this crime. It's a strange sight, but I don't think it's much of a stretch at all to say that God takes his word very seriously. 
Being a child of God, being called to mission is a high privilege. It is also a high responsibility. Hear me carefully. I speak particularly to those of you with hardened hearts among us. You know who you are. If that is true of you, I speak particularly with the, to those of hard heart. It is insane to think that you can get away with sin because you're a child of God. We need to put these two ideas together. He loves us with a zealous, tenacious, and loyal love. But it is insanity to think that he somehow cuts us a break. In his disobedience to the covenant, God is willing to put to death the man that he has been nurturing for 80 years for this task. And he sends message to every one of us, I do not need you. I love you with a love that is deeper than you will ever fathom for the rest of eternity, but I do not need you. Those on a mission for God must take extra precaution to walk in obedience to the God whose mission they fulfill. In fact, if I am right biblically, and if experience serves, I would say that God holds his people to a much higher standard than he does the world. That is not because the world is free to sin, does not owe anything to God, It is God's mercy, it is His grace that keeps them from dying in a moment and falling into hell. But God does not hold a higher standard for them than for His people. In fact, I think the opposite is true. And Moses has learned something here. He has learned that God takes His word seriously. It is a lesson that he must have as he walks into Pharaoh's court. I must obey on God's terms, in God's way. Now after this bump in the road, Moses is fully prepared, and now his team is assembled as he journeys to Egypt. Verse 27, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. Here I do think we should add the word had said. There's something that's probably been going on here for some time, and that is that Aaron is making his way eastward, along the Sinai Peninsula to the southern tip, where Moses is making his way as he comes westward. And they meet here at the mountain of God. Moses was called by God here to the mission. Aaron joins the mission here, and it is here to Mount Sinai where they will bring the released slaves back. Here they will become a nation at this very mountain, chapter 3 and verse 12. So this is a significant meeting place. Moses and Aaron together, and then Moses, verse 28, told Aaron everything the Lord had said to him, had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. God does not repeat to Aaron all the words he spoke to Moses. It is enough that Moses conveys the message to his brother. I think there's a parallel, isn't there, here really to the apostles and to us. We don't have to hear the voice of God repeated over and over again. We have simply the words that are passed on to us. 
passed on from Moses to Aaron, communicated to him. Through the desert, they journey. Every step now brings them closer to Egypt, and I'm sure as they enter the outskirts of the land that Moses' heart trembled with the gravity of the mission. But in the end, like the greater deliverer to come in Moses' train, Moses emerges from the desert to deliver God's people. In verse 29, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. They don't assemble a crowd, Moses getting a bunch of people around and showing them the miraculous signs just to get a big group together and then riling them up as slaves to seek freedom. He gathers the elders, those who can be trusted most to reason, to think through the situation, to test the issue, to know that there are people that they must lead into this situation. He gathers these elders together, and Aaron, verse 30, told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people. Apparently that's Aaron, that he might be Moses here. It really doesn't matter. The signs and the message are delivered. First... They relay the facts God has spoken. Second, they perform the authenticating signs. The message is true. And verse 31, gloriously, they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. The time had come. The prophecy to Abraham of a 400-year sojourn in Egypt had run its course. Chapter 15. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had looked on the affliction of the Israelite slaves with compassion and had come to deliver them. And what is their response? They bowed down and they worshipped. It is an appropriate response. Our mission in life will certainly not approximate the greatness and the glory of the mission of Moses. But like Moses, we too are God's people on a mission. And like the complaining, excuse-finding, disobedient Moses, we must recognize that our mission is not the pursuit of self-worth and self-satisfaction. Our mission is the exaltation of the splendor of Jesus Christ. I know they are firm words. I believe them with all my heart. We must understand we are here to magnify the glory of Jesus Christ. We have life for no other reason. That's the mission to which God has called us. That is to be our singular focus. We are to lay down life and we are to pick up Christ's cross and we are to follow Him. That is the calling that we have as believers in Jesus. Our mission is to exalt the splendor of Jesus Christ, to spread His word, and to find worshipers throughout this world for Him. Now on this grand mission, all of us looking differently in the circumstances of our life, but what we must understand as we learn from Moses' experience is first of all that God is sovereign. It is God who hardens hearts, and it is God who softens hearts for His glory. And there is a great mystery in this, 
There's a frustration in it. It's a frustration I know as I talk with some of you that you face as you share the gospel with unsaved friends and with unsaved relatives and you wonder how the heart can stay hard so long. It's a mission that every one of us who has spiritual concern for someone else in this church or in our family shares. We know the frustration of a hard heart that we cannot soften up in our own strength. We've got to stand back and let God be God. We need to do all that we can to represent His cause fairly. But listen, neither you nor me nor anyone else that's ever walked this earth outside of Jesus Christ can change a heart on our own. There are those that are hardened by God. There are those who are softened by God. And we must trust His sovereign mercy. Never using that as an excuse for our own failure and disobedience. But knowing we must have God. We must have His grace to meet us in our sinful need and to open our eyes to His glories. If you don't see those glories today, as just a side note. I don't know what else to do but plead with you to go to prayer today and to seek the face of God and ask Him with all of your heart and earnestness to open your eyes to a splendor that is greater than you'll ever conceive. If there's a person, if there's an experience, if there's a history that gets in the way of you seeing God, it may be time for you to stop projecting your father or some other person upon God and start looking to God for who He is. Because there is nothing but splendor and glory and goodness in Him to the very core of His being. And He loves you. Plead with Him to open your eyes to His glories. He is sovereign. We must understand that as we go on this mission. We need to understand, as I've just mentioned, that God is loyal to His children. We must put our faith and our confidence in that. And we must thirdly serve Jesus Christ as a high calling and note that it is a high privilege. If Jesus has bought you with his blood, then he has called you to a life of radical obedience. That is his calling. That is his claim upon your life. He does not stand by and simply whisk into heaven Christians who want a ticket to heaven and want no God to serve. God is always loyal to His children, but He has given us life that we might be zealous for good works. He has given us life as His new workmanship that we might do good works. He has given us life that we would serve the cause of Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of my life and then church. Or my life and my devotions. Our life is to be integrated. Jesus Christ is to be at the center. He is to be the controlling leader of our mission. It means that we must walk in obedience and it means that we must identify with Him. This really starts to hit close to home. 
Because in this world, we realize that this radical kind of obedience is really not going to cut it in making us popular. People are not going to understand such a devotion to Jesus Christ. It's going to be seen as religious fanaticism. I've read in articles that it's called religious addiction. I won't go any further on that. that, that I, I just, I'd have to laugh at that one. But religious addiction. We need to identify with Jesus Christ. And everybody around us needs to know that he is the captain of the mission of our life. There should be no question in anyone's mind that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, live for Jesus every day, all the time. We sin, we fall short, we are not always successful as we should be. But there should be no question in anyone's mind that we belong to Jesus Christ. Moses attempted to take on this mission and not identify as a family with the person of God and his covenant to Abraham. And God intervened. May we be willing to live for Jesus Christ and to know that that includes identification with him. It involves, first of all, a confession of faith that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. There are no other saviors, but He is the Savior. And it follows, I believe, biblically then, with believers' baptism. To stand in the waters of baptism and to say to a watching crowd, I have identified with the crucified and risen Christ. We must do that to bring glory to Him and to evidence that He is, in fact, the Lord of our mission. And in all of this, fourthly, let me say that our goal is what? It is where this passage ends. To live our lives so that other people worship God. It's assumed that we are to live our life in worship of God, but as we lead forward on this mission... We are to live in such a way that we put praise in the mouth of other people toward God. I do not care that this church would ever remember me dead as a great man or a great scholar or that my children would think of me as a great provider, a wealthy man of fame. What I want as I pass this life is to leave behind people who worship Jesus because I was here. And I pray that you would have that same desire, that what your children would do and what they would remember as they leave your home is, my mom, my dad worship God. That the young people of this church, as they look to you, would look up to someone who worships Jesus Christ and that they would long to do the same. That those of you who are young people would orient your life that way and ask this question, who will worship Christ because of me? That is God using me as an instrument to put praise in the mouth of others. May that be the mission of our life.
May that be our desire, that people would think more of Christ because I was here. He is sovereign. He loves us. He has called us to a high and holy calling, and it is our mission to free the captives of sin and to put praise in their mouth. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let's stand together as we do in number 43. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. May we sing these words of praise as we respond.